Price, that's the number one technical indicator. You do best by investing for the longer term. If you can't explain what the business is doing, then that is a huge red flag. Some technological change is going to put you out of business. It really is a genuinely extraordinary situation. Hello, everyone. I'm Ed Gotham, and welcome to Opto Sessions, where we interview the top traders and investors from around the world, uncovering their secrets to success. This week, I have the pleasure of introducing Alan Brockstein, who's known as the leading financial analyst dedicated to the cannabis industry. Alan spent decades on the inside of the investment industry as a portfolio manager on Wall Street before starting 420 Investor, the largest due diligence platform covering public traded stocks in the cannabis industry. In addition, he leads content development and strategic alliances at New Cannabis Ventures, a leading provider of relevant information in the cannabis industry, a necessary source of information for anyone interested in investing in this area. It really is one of the best I've seen, if not the best. We had a really interesting conversation where we discussed the huge potential of the industry, common misconceptions about some of the most popular stocks, such as Tilray Canopy Growth, and also how cannabis could be considered as a growing consumer staple. Enjoy. Hi, Alan. Great to have you on the show. Thanks very much uh, for attending. Yeah. Oh, it's my, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. How's everything in Houston at the moment? You know, it's, uh, this is a nice time of year in Houston because, uh, as everybody knows, Houston can be hot and humid, but uh, we're still on that edge of that. Yeah, yeah. How hot does it, does it get there? Uh, definitely can get to 100 plus degrees, but it, it's the humidity. Wow. It's 100% relative humidity sometimes. It's good for the skin. Yeah. And we, uh, we just had a friend that moved there. And um, is it, there's a lot of hurricanes and stuff going on at the moment. Is that right? Uh, you know, there's not a lot of hurricanes, but it is something we have to deal with, yeah. you know, often. But no, we don't get like a hurricane a year or anything. Oh, right. Okay. Fair. Okay. It's just when they come, it's terrible. And we're always afraid that they're coming. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Awesome. Well, it's great to have you on the show, as I said, and you know, obviously one of, one of the experts in the sort of medical and legal marijuana area. Um, I wanted to just kick off by asking you how big you think this market can be. What's its potential? Because I think a lot of people have no understanding at all, really, of where it could go. You know, and this is a very fair question, Ed. Uh, I don't actually have a specific number, but I'll tell you how I think about it. It's so big, I don't think about it. Uh, So the good news is that you can just start with the realization that there's a massive illegal market or illicit market. you know, cannabis is already a, a very widely consumed product around the world. So, you know, literally hundreds of billions of dollars a year are spent on it. But the legal cannabis market is a, is a smaller part. And uh, that's really where the opportunity comes to take people who are being served with product that's not regulated, uh, uh, you know, lab tested, things like that, and, uh, and to be able to offer them the exact same product at, uh, you know, hopefully conveniently and uh, safely. But that's only the beginning because there's really uh, the whole idea of being able to create new products within a legal uh, framework. Because in, in, in the illicit market, they, there's really not a big advantage to doing R&D. You can't really get patents. You can't really uh, uh, advertise what you're doing. But in, in the legal market, you have the potential to create new products, and especially pharmaceutical products. You know, we saw GW Pharma uh, receive uh, a 
uh, FDA approval for uh, its first uh, of, of hopefully more blockbuster drugs that are derived from cannabis, not mm. uh, synthetic, but from actual cannabis plants. And uh, so I, I think there's a massive market out there uh, where you could see either over-the-counter or also prescription cannabis-based medicines. We're already seeing to a limited degree uh, some companies go to market with like CBD within their products. Yep. And the regulatory framework for CBD is kind of tough right now. But uh, that just kind of gives you an example of over time where we're headed. So, uh, so the market's really big right now in, in the illicit market and the conversion of that is, is going very well. We still could get bigger from more states legalizing, of course. Uh, uh, and then uh, I think there's a whole new category or two uh, between health and wellness and pharmaceuticals that can make the market even bigger. Yeah. And what states um, have legalized it so far? And has there been like a massive uptake? Have been the companies that are in that area uh, or that state, have they ever been very successful from that sort of legalization? Is that how it's? Yeah, I, I think we're up to, you know, I lose count, but I think like officially number 17 just voted to legalize. And so early on, the legalizations were done through ballot initiatives. And uh, uh, yeah. so the first ones were in Colorado, and that was the first market to go live, and then Washington. But both of those states prohibited uh, public company ownership at first, and, and Washington still does. And so that was uh, the way it was back in 2014. Since then, We've seen a lot of states legalized through that same way, through the, the ballot box. Uh, Maine, and I think it was Maine. Uh, no, 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 not Maine. Vermont. Vermont uh, uh, was, I believe, the first, but they weren't the first to actually go live. Illinois was the first state to go live where the, yep. the legislative body just decided to legalize. And it, and it was an astounding success. And... Uh, and that's usually the best. Well, the two things I look for are an established medical market and you know well-constructed mm. program uh, for adult use, and that's what Illinois had. And so uh, Michigan also went through the legislative process, and, and both those markets are billion-plus markets very quickly, like just into their second years. And then on top of that, uh, this this election season we saw. Several states, five or uh, four for adult use, uh, and two of them I'd say were super important, uh, Arizona and New Jersey, both of which have a lot of public company exposure, and then also South Dakota, and uh, uh, I'm trying to remember what the fourth one was, uh, Montana. So these were, yeah. these were symbolic, in my opinion, but important because they're states that, are, that tend to have Republican voter majorities, so just kind of interesting. But... But then the thesis that most of us came up with was like, hey, you get New Jersey to say they're legalizing, which they, they were, and then they did. But that's going to stimulate like a domino effect on the East Coast. And in fact, that's played out pretty quickly with New York already legalizing and uh, Virginia. And then we're seeing other states like Connecticut and Mar Maryland flirt with it. And Pennsylvania is tough, but there's another one that could flip too. So we're really seeing the whole Eastern seaboard embrace legalization. And then also uh, kind of unrelated, I think, but maybe it, it, it's adjacent. New Mexico, adjacent to Arizona and Colorado, uh, 
they, they just went through the legislative process to get to that 17 or 18, whatever we're up to now. Yeah. And is it fair to say that the main, the main driver behind the success of this industry is the legalization throughout, you know, as the states sort of, it almost seems to be like a domino effect now that, that they're all influencing each other in, in this sort of push to legalization? Yeah, I think, uh, so there's a lot of reasons this is going on. I mean, it all starts with the fact, I mean, there's a lot going on. First of all, uh, you know, I think the social injustice part uh, over the last year is people have become a little bit more aware of just how unfair cannabis laws are to people of color. I think that's become a, a bigger part of, part of the conversation, but it, it goes deeper than that, uh, obviously. I think that, uh, the economic uh, situation of a lot of these states uh, in terms of having, you know, wanting jobs and wanting tax dollars uh, is, is uh, an important aspect as well. So uh, that's really what's driving it, those two things, I would say. But it, it all starts with the fact, you know, the vast majority of people think it should be legal. Yeah. So that's interesting. When you said um, the states have an interest in it because they want to get, use it as a revenue stream, essentially, from taxes, is that what you're sort of implying? Yeah. So, you you know, right now in in states where you have uh, no cannabis legalization, there are still large cannabis markets, uh, but they're illicit. And so it's a health and safety issue, but it's also a, uh, you know, issue of tax revenue. And uh, so it's kind of a, you can really create some interesting triple wins where, you know, the people get what they want, uh, uh, you know, there's no more criminality of something that shouldn't be criminal. So it really helps from a social justice effort. So mm-hmm. the consumer's happy, persecuted individuals are no longer persecuted, and there's an economic benefit. So it, it really, everybody wins, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, got it. Since 2013, I believe you've been in this sort of industry in, in the financial area related to the cannabis sector. Are you able to give us a, a brief background of your history uh, today? Yeah, sure. So my, my, my background was pretty boring, actually. I, I worked on Wall Street right out of college, and uh, I, I switched from uh, bonds to stocks, which to most people doesn't sound like anything, but it wasn't easy. And I was uh, basically working in a small investment management firm. We managed about half a billion dollars. And I left that firm in late 06, and I went to work for myself as an independent research analyst. And so it was really seven years of that. And, and I will tell you, that is not an easy job to make a living at. I loved the analysis, but finding clients that would pay and all that can be very challenging. But I was lucky. It forced me, uh, because my business model was really just to work with uh, uh, institutional investors. But I, I also started to pursue ways of working with individuals, not, not as an individual advisor, but through uh, these services, that, uh, like a newsletter, online newsletter. And because of that, I, I found myself yeah. at Seeking Alpha as one of their most prolific authors. Uh, and so I had a very wide following at Seeking Alpha. Oh, wow. And, uh, and it just so happened, you know, I, I, I read a lot on Seeking Alpha also at that time. And uh, there, was, there was an article in February of 2013, and that article... Uh, opened my eyes to a couple things. First of all, the fact that cannabis had been legalized in Colorado and 
Uh, I didn't know it was called cannabis back then, by the way, but uh, marijuana was legalized in uh, Colorado and Washington in, in late 2012. I didn't even, that didn't register for me. So that was the first thing that I was like, wow. And cannabis was always important to me as a uh, uh, philosophical, political issue. Uh, I, I was a consumer in college. I wasn't like, uh, at that time, I was very far removed from a personal relationship with cannabis, but you know, I had fond memories of it from my youth. So the other thing that it opened my eyes to was that there were actually publicly traded yeah. companies. So I was like, huh, this sounds interesting. And I started to look into it and these companies were outright scams in my opinion, for the most part. And so, so it, it kind of encouraged me to look into it. Really? And so I, I started writing about these companies and I already had a very wide following. And of course, not everybody cared, but a lot of people were really interested in what I was doing. And so I, I ended up creating 420 Investor, a subscription-based service that I launched later that year. But you know, I, I think it's important for everybody to understand, I knew nothing really uh, in February of 13. I, I knew literally nothing. Like the word cannabis, I didn't even, it didn't resonate with me. I knew what marijuana was and I remembered it and I knew nothing. I spent those next few months learning about the medical benefits, about the social justice issues, about, uh, you know, the different uh, states that had uh, legalized and what, what was going on. So I really spent a lot of time getting up to speed. But, but I have to say for the first several years, I really spent most of my time warning people about how bad these companies were. And it, it really wasn't until Canada legalized, uh, well, they had a medicinal program that kicked in, but people didn't care about it that much. It was really uh, in 2015 when Justin Trudeau got elected. Subsequent to that, our industry really improved. And as Canada legalized for adult use, which took three years, uh, that's when uh, I would say the quality of companies, I got to use my CFA, let's put it that way. It became more about financial analysis and less about yeah, character analysis. Um, one of the most interesting questions I think um, I'd really like you to talk about is um, mapping out this market for us. Because I, th I think a lot of people don't really have in-depth knowledge of how many different types of like, sub-industries there are in this, this mega industry. You know, yeah. there's, there's, throughout the supply chain, retailers, there's growers. It'd be interesting to, sure. to get that perspective yeah. from, from your point of view. So it's interesting. Every Friday night, I, I share with my subscribers a uh, what I call the subsector review. And it changes you know, the, the actual names of the subsectors. But in general, I break the market up into, uh, I guess, about eight. I don't know. I don't keep track of, maybe it's a little bit more. But the subsectors that I'm tracking right now are the American cannabis operators, which uh, I'm talking about state state licensed cannabis companies. And I break that into multiple because they're, they're not all the oh, same. Right. Some of them are maybe operating in one state. Some of them are in multiple states and have a large market cap. So that's one part. Then, then I do the same thing with the Canadian LPs. I mean, there's over 650 licenses in Canada. There's over 50 public companies. But so again, I break that into uh, two or three buckets, three buckets there, four buckets on the American side. And I think sadly, this is where a lot of people stop. They don't realize there's a lot more in the market. So there's an ancillary part of the market. And these are the companies that uh, mm. sell uh, either on the front end or the back end. So imagine providing capital to companies to build out is, is one example, selling them packages. 
packaging supplies, selling them nutritional supplies, lights, things like that. So, uh, and that, yeah. I, I've been shocked at how long it's taken for the public markets to kind of uh, be receptive mm-hmm. to, to that, but they are now. And, and I'm, I'm happy to say that there's some very you know, prominent companies now trading publicly that do that. Uh, in Canada, I have another subsector, the Canadian retailers. So in, in Canada, it's uh, pretty much impossible to be vertically integrated. A, a few of the licensed producers yep. there do have some retail stores, but it, it, it's a small part of their business and they're very limited. So they're not major players. But the, this is another very overlooked part of the market uh, for whatever reason, it's just not widely followed and people don't care as much about it. So then there's the CBD sector uh, that I follow. Then there's a biotechnology subsector as well. You know, we just lost GW Pharma because they're going to be acquired by Jazz Pharma. But I, I, I think, you know, when I look at that, uh, Jazz Pharma is uh, uh, going to be worth following because it, it's, it was a similar size to GW. So it's yeah. a little bit diluted, but still. And there's a few other companies as well that I put in that biotech uh, subsector. So that, that's kind of it. And I, I do think that in general, uh, there's way too much emphasis on the companies that actually grow cannabis and not enough emphasis on all these others. Yeah. yeah. And the, when you say biotech, do you, is that the sort of medical area? Is that what you're saying? Or is that, have I got that wrong? Well, no. Uh, so GW Pharma, so I, I don't really follow, there are a lot of companies out there that I don't follow. They're using synthetic cannabinoids or they're doing things to mimic cannabis or something like that, or the, the CB2 receptors or all this. So they're not actually working with cannabis. And I'm yeah, not okay. here to say there's a good or bad. I, I don't care. There's just, I can only focus on so much. And I do pay attention to some things out there uh, that I don't cover because they could be threats to the industry, but I'm not really digging into the individual companies the way I am with uh, cannabis related. So I'm really most interested in, you know, the, the, the plant and all all the applications of of the plant Mm -hmm. and the uh, growing processing and selling of it and everything around that, not so much into the science. So the bio technology part would include companies like GW Pharma, which has cannabis-derived medicines. It would, there's an Israeli company I'm kind of tracking that's helping with genetics. I mean, it's, it's hard to get excited about it, so I'm not even going to get into that. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. I, I mentioned another subsector. I forgot to mention another subsector. I just remembered. And I'm not paying that oh. much attention to it right now, but international. And, and that's been a pretty slow market to develop. Right. But you know, I mentioned Canada. I mentioned the U.S., but there's a whole big world out there. And there, there are a few companies that are publicly traded that trade in the United States as well. And, and I, I know there'll be more because we're starting to see the European capital markets fund companies. So it's just a matter of time. So that's another subsector. Yeah. But, but to the biotech, it, it's basically companies that are, so, I mean, some of them may be like ancillary in the sense that they're helping other companies, but, but they're using biotechnology to do so. So... I, I guess that's a distinguishment. And which one of these sort of sub-industries do you think has the most potential and, and, and why? Look, I, th- I think they all have potential. And so what I always say, you know, people say, what makes more sense to focus on retail or on processing or growing? I'm like, what makes sense is to focus on what you're best at. <laughs> that's a, so there's no like, okay, well, so there's an argument 
that there's a lot of truth to this argument. Cultivation will become commoditized over time. So if you're a company that's just growing, uh, you know, low grade or standard grade cannabis for extraction purposes, you know, that's going to be, unless you are the low cost producer, that's probably not going to create a lot of value over time. But then you can't say, well, cultivation, you can't create value because there's a lot of companies out there that are able to produce very high quality. Think of it like the craft beer argument. So, so I, I wouldn't say that you can't create value there. There's two ways to create value. One, by being a very large-scale, low-cost producer, and the other, you know, being able to produce high quality at, at a good price point. So uh, you know, people talk about are the brands the most valuable? So sure, there will be some very valuable brands and there'll be some failures. I think retail, you know, some people think retail is worthless. I, I think good retailers in the space will make a lot of money. Retail has a lot of value. So I, I would never rule out any sector, really. Uh, I don't think, but I, I can tell you, I think the very largest Canadian LPs have some real challenges to justify their market cap. So but is that a permanent thing or is that just the way it is right now? I mean, I, I, I don't think that they're permanently in trouble, but I think that they need to have something happen, like get into the United States or have some of these foreign markets accelerate because they, they, can't, they can't justify their market caps in Canada. Yeah, yeah, I got you. And so the logical next question is, how do people find and assess the best opportunities in the industry? Have you got some, should they looking at the financials or a lot of these companies probably aren't making that money yet because they're... Well, that's not true. <laughs> yeah. So look, when I first started following the industry, there was no revenue to talk about. And there was this big disconnect because it was all on the come. It was all companies that had raised capital and were building stuff, but they weren't selling bupkis, as we say in Texas. So um, things evolved. At New Cannabis Ventures, uh, we created something called the Revenue Tracker that's now called the Revenue and Operating Profit Tracker. And, you know, I was just reviewing it. I think we launched this thing in 2019. And uh, I think to qualify as being a leading cannabis company, all you needed was $2.5 million a quarter or $10 million a year of revenue. Now to qualify, you need $12.5 million in a quarter. And so, you know, at first... All people care about was revenue. And then we realized pretty quickly that, well, you need to track operating profit as well. And, you know, there are a lot of profitable companies now. Uh, I mean, I think investors need to understand in the United States, there's, uh, you know, if you look at EBITDA, you, you're, you're forgetting two important things, the interest and the taxes, especially the taxes, because in, in the United States being federally illegal, there's uh, an onerous tax called 280E. Mm. And so we, we see marginal tax rates that can be, 72 to 80%. But with that said, there are companies that are actually generating after-tax profits now. Okay, great. Large ones, large public companies. So in terms of metrics, you, you looking at sort of growth rates in profit and, and revenue as sort of big indicators? Yeah. I mean, so I said earlier that, uh, you know, I couldn't really wear my CFA hat in the early days, but now it, it's really all about that. And yeah. so- we're seeing M&A and you can kind of assess the M&A to see, you know, if it's creating value or not. Uh, the metrics have shifted before people were looking just at price. Well, let me back up. When the Canadian LPs went public, they were, they were valued on how much capacity they had. It was the silliest thing ever. So uh, then we started shifting the market to revenue, which, okay, that's good. But 
now, now people, I would say, you know, most of the, and there's a lot of analysts out there. Most of the analysts are really focused on, um, you know, one year out, two year out, uh, enterprise value to EBITDA uh, ratios. Brilliant. And are anything, is there anything that people should be looking out for? Any warning signs um, that you might look at when, you know, researching a company? You know, so I used to have all these red flags and, and things that were concerning and, uh, I, I don't see the cannabis industry as having too much of an issue, but but there's one I want to share uh, because I, I think just to share this will kind of tell people how difficult it can be to navigate the space. So let me say first that these companies aren't doing anything wrong. They are not required to disclose what I'm about to talk about. But so when the companies in the United States report their revenue, they just give you one number. And so let's say a company is operating in eight states. They're, they're giving you one revenue number across those eight states. And so unfortunately, because the reality is, from my perspective is these are holding companies. Because goods can't cross state lines, what you're talking about right. is a holding company. They're all distinct operations, but very few of the operators are giving the kind of detail that I think an analyst really needs to assess what's going on. And so uh, this is something, uh, just to answer your question, it kind of bothers me. Not, not that they're doing anything illegal uh, or unethical even, but there's just a, a little bit of a lack of disclosure or lack of granularity uh, a, a, about the state level of uh, revenue and, and, and more importantly, profitability. Mm-hmm. And so uh, if, if your listeners aren't understanding why this is important, so different states have extremely different dynamics. Uh, so you have some states where there's like an unlimited number of operators, really. Uh, they're certainly not limited by law. And there seems like there's like Oregon is a great example of a state that has so many operators. And so not surprisingly, Economics 101, the, the profitability can be lower there. Yeah. And then you take a state like um, Pennsylvania, where there's a limited number of, of, of licenses or, or Illinois, and the profitability is really high right now. And so I, I think as an investor, you'd want to understand how much of the revenue is yeah, coming yeah. from Oregon versus Pennsylvania, just as an example. And, and because you're not able to really monitor that, you, you will most likely not be out in front of any sort of when those markets, which are undersupplied right now, come more into balance. So, and there's not a lot of state level data either for some of these states. So, you, I think uh, investors and analysts are a little bit on their own when it comes to trying to figure out uh, the supply demand uh, balance in certain states. And am I right in saying that taxes would be quite a lot different on a state? Uh, they state are. That, that, that's true. Yeah. But, uh, so the companies report their revenue net of taxes, but yes, the, the taxes do differ from state to state. And that's a whole nother issue because, you know, uh, if you want to beat the black market or the illicit market, you don't want to have the tax rates so high that it creates that incentive. Yeah. And so some states seem to get that and others struggle with that. Yeah. Okay. Got you. We hope you're enjoying the episode. For interviews like this every Thursday, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, make sure you give us a star rating and leave guest suggestions along with any other feedback in the review section. Now, back to the show.
something else um, I found really interesting when I was, I was um, on your website was about you were comparing US and Canadian companies. Um, and obviously the, the Canadian companies, as you mentioned, have been some of the uh, stocks which have got the most attention, the highest valuations, et cetera. Um, but actually, I, I believe I'm right in saying, are not as well positioned to, to sort of benefit from the legalization in America as American companies. Is, is that fair to say? Yeah, I, I think, you know, it's been one of the most interesting dynamics. So your, your listeners may not appreciate this, but uh, certain stocks have great liquidity and others are struggle. And those certain stocks that have the great liquidity are the ones that trade on the New York Stock Exchange and the NASDAQ, which prohibit American direct cannabis companies from trading. It doesn't prohibit the ancillary. And so that's why I think we're starting to see more ancillary companies. Uh, Hydro Farm just went public. Uh, Grogen has done a great job since they uplisted their stocks up like uh, 10x. Uh, so we are seeing uh, that. So because of this, investors uh, sometimes will buy the more liquid names without really understanding the dynamics. So when the elections took place in November and uh, uh, Biden won, uh, it set off a buying stampede in the Canadian LPs, which have that better liquidity. And, you know, I'm sitting here scratching my head because uh, I, I think there's a lot that you can argue uh, whether what's going on at the federal level is good, bad, or indifferent. I think indifferent, by the way, but uh, because to me, the American cannabis industry is uh, about the status quo, the state-by-state -state legalization and how it allows these companies to build their franchises without threat of competition. But in any event, it was very clear that there's, this is nothing for the Canadian LPs. And so in January, when the Georgia uh, runoffs uh, sent the control of the Senate, I guess, barely to the Democrats, it set off another stampede where the Canadian LPs, again, led the way. And so I think there's this false narrative, this idea that we're going to have quick legalization in the United States and that that's going to be good for the Canadian LPs. And, and I would just argue that both those things are probably wrong. Mm -hmm. uh, we're not, it's not going to be quick. And I'm not so sure it's good for the Canadian LPs. And here's why. Because an investor can look at what these Canadian LPs have done, or I would say have not done, and then look at what the, their American counterparts have done. And, you know, I think the mistake people are making is saying, well, you know, look, this company trades on the NASDAQ and that one doesn't, so it's going to do better. No, because anything that opens the door to a, a Canadian company to come into the United States would simultaneously allow the American company to uplist, meaning that investors, that, that whole argument's over. And the American companies, have done a great job of scaling up. They make money. They're profitable. They grow their revenue and they're profitable. The Canadian cannabis market uh, in 2020 uh, doubled. It doubled the, the, the retail market, uh, adult use sales. And you, know, you look at the revenue of the leading licensed producers, it really lagged. They're not market leaders. They're market laggards. So it's just kind of interesting to me. And uh, the whole world seemed to get this wrong. And I'm watching it. And uh, uh, it's being corrected right now. Yeah. 
I mean, that's quite fundamental, isn't it? I mean, yes. And I think that, you know, what you say, it's fundamental versus who's buying these stocks. They're not fundamental investors. Yeah. Yeah. That's very true. Yeah. Um, but it's, it's almost like the media plays against retail investors sometimes because they wrap. It's definitely those Canadian ones that have got in the press a lot as well, isn't it? Yeah. And, and people right. see, oh, it's a cannabis company. I'll get um, exp- good exposure through this company that's been, you know, come, come into my sort of new stream. Already. It's been very frustrating. Uh, you know, you, you'll, you'll see something like uh, a story on New York's legalizing. It'll be on CNBC and they'll run tickers for Tilray and Afria yeah, yeah, and yeah. Canopy Growth and Aurora. And you're like, wow, what is, but that's, you know, it's kind of a joke. It's funny and sad at the same time. That's it. I mean, it's a great thing that you're around to set the straight then. Um, I mean, this is exactly why we love having people like yourself on the podcast. Um, what other catalysts do you think, if there are any, might be big for the sector, apart from legalization, which, as you said, can take, you know, many years in time? Yeah. So, I think there's a lot going on this year. So one of the catalysts that I expect it is playing out, I think there's a little bit more to it. And that's, you know, more states embracing legalization. <clears throat> I mentioned a couple earlier, Connecticut and uh, in, uh, Maryland on the East Coast and maybe Pennsylvania, which is a tough politically, unfortunately. But uh, there are other states out there that uh, could legalize in the next couple of years that would maybe surprise people like Wisconsin, Minnesota. Ohio, states like that in the Midwest. So, you know, the West is pretty legalized now. Uh, you know, I just saw something that Louisiana, and I don't know if it's going to happen, but they have a small medical program there. They're actually contemplating legalization. So that, that's one catalyst. But what's nice about that catalyst is, you know, a lot of people get excited when the state votes to legalize, but it takes a while to get implemented. It, it's, a, it, it, it's a long-term catalyst. It's, it's, yes, there may be a short-term boost, but the, this is something that gives us fuel for future expansion. So that's one. I think, uh, M&A is a big one. So this is a highly fragmented industry. Uh, Cureleaf is the largest American company in terms of market cap and revenue. And I don't even think it has 10% of the market. And part of this is because you can't have uh, a lot of market share anyway, because a lot of states limit it. But there's still ample opportunity for the leading MSOs, multi, mm-hmm. multi-state operators, to do M&A to, f- to fill in, in in the states they're operating in or to expand into additional states. And so I, I think, to me, this is exciting because the deals that are getting done, at least from my perspective, are very likely to create value. They are getting the, the, the public, I, I, think, I think the public... Uh, valuations are, are very yeah. fair. Like I, I think they give investors a chance to make money yeah. over the next year. But the private multiples are way below. And maybe that's because there just aren't that many consolidators out there that, that people really want to hitch to. I don't know exactly. It's, it seems really wide to me when I look at these deal valuations and, uh, and you know, how cheap they appear to be. So that's another driver m and I think one of the most important ones. Uh, uh, so I think legalization is going to take a long time and I, I'm not even sure it's good. Uh, CBD was legalized uh, uh, theoretically in 2018 with the U S farm act and when hemp was legalized, but 
even to this day, it, the FDA is, you know, uh, thinking about it and not acting. And so because of that, the CBD market's in disarray. And for anybody that thinks federally legal cannabis is a good thing, I would just suggest that that can mean the FDA could have oversight over all cannabis, which I think is frightening. So, so in some ways, what I'm about to say, I'm glad. I don't think, I, look, I wish everybody that was in jail would be let go right now. And so I, I would like decriminalization, but to have federally legal commercial activities right now uh, could be detrimental to, uh, to these companies or challenging anyway. Uh, there's a lot of assets that they have that would become you know, wasted assets if you have interstate commerce. So I think the good news is if you look at Canada, where the premier ran on, I think, three different things, one of them was legalizing cannabis, and it took three years. So I, I think it's very complex, and it's going to take a long time. But there are some things that could happen uh, in the interim that would be extremely uh, helpful. So uh, one would be uh, the ability. So it, it's, it is possible, and it's hard to predict, but it is possible that far short of legalization, we could have some sort of clarity and guidance that would allow exchanges to list these companies. So there's no law that says that they can't. It's just that these exchanges are very wealthy and they don't want to risk federal intervention. So they don't. And uh, so we need, you know, they, they, they've had guidance in the past. They never talked about the exchanges. Uh, I don't know that just a uh, FinCEN is the regulator. If, if they were to just mention, you know, in, in a memorandum that it's okay, I'm, I'm not sure that would be good enough, but it might. But we could have uh, uh, legislation that would not legalize, but that would permit this. And, and to me, that is one of the biggest opportunities because that's one of the biggest challenges right now. Uh, you know, a lot of trading platforms don't include these stocks um, at all. So people can't buy them. And a lot of institutions, we're, we're starting to see institutions show up. I should add that as a catalyst, by the way, more and more institutional investors. But, you know, yeah, so yeah, many yeah. of them can't. They won't buy uh, these stocks uh, if they're not on the New York Stock Exchange or the NASDAQ. So that is a huge one. There, there's some other things that could change too, like the ability to more easily take credit cards uh, that I think would be positive. But uh, and then also, I don't think it's going to happen, but if they did away with that 280E, uh, I just have a feeling they're not going to do that until they figure out legalization. So, but that, the 280, that onerous tax. So these are all things that I keep my eyes out for. Yeah. And just to clarify on that, that point you mentioned about how legalization could be bad. Do you, uh, were you meaning on a countrywide level rather than a state level? Yes, exactly. Yeah. So if, okay. if it, Got you. We don't know what federal legalization really looks like. There's so many dynamics. And uh, uh, we, we've already seen uh, some of the states start to do set-asides for small businesses or minorities. Uh, there could be, uh, you know, the, the term that they use in the industry is social equity. And I actually happen to be a big advocate of it, but I prefer that it not be mandated, but that the industry just get it right itself. And, uh, but you know, we could see the federal government, I, I, I've seen, I've heard, I should say, you know, this type of language, like we want to keep big businesses out of the cannabis industry. And when they say big businesses, they're talking about some of the, these companies in the United States that are doing 
you know, a billion on their way or uh, at a billion dollar yeah. a year revenue. That's considered a big business. And so, it, you know, right now things are going really well for these companies. I'm not going to predict that it's going to be bad, but, you know, that's my job to figure out what yeah. could go wrong and that could go wrong. And can you quickly tell us about the um, global cannabis stock index? Yeah. So, we, you know, I started this, uh, uh, it goes back to the beginning of 2013 and I actually created it initially late in that year and uh, went back and picked the stocks that uh, would have qualified and just had them in there for the whole year. So I, I would say that first inception had a little bit of a back history in it. I don't think it's very controversial, but ever since then, every single quarter I've rebalanced this index using uh, the, the criteria do change, but I've been using objective criteria and it's based on this, the, the companies that are, uh, that have high trading volume, basically. It's, it's based on trading volume and, you know, dollar volume, not shares. And, mm -hmm. uh, and there's, you know, certain criteria now it has to be above, uh, a uh, dollar actually. So things have really, the, the, the standards have gone up a lot, but, uh, so it, it's, it basically reflects the investable universe and it, it's equal weighted. It's not market cap weighted, mm -hmm. which I think is appropriate for a new industry where, uh, you know, investors aren't going to necessarily buy just the largest market yeah, cap. Weighted. Yeah. But that's, that's what that index is. So there's a, a nice long history to it. And um, why the volume is the, the main sort of... Um... Um, so if, if, a, if a stock never trades... Or if it only trades ten dollars a day, it's it's not really something that reflects reality. So, uh, I I think it's a million dollars a day minimum trading okay, okay. value to. So that's that's what drives. So the it. one that have got most interest, basically. Exactly, yeah. and that changes every quarter, does it? It does change from quarter to quarter, but it's been pretty stable. Yeah, it it has been pretty stable, but there are new names that come in and a few fall out. Yes, because of that. And now we're seeing them fall out because of consolidation. Mm -hmm. And considering where, where we're at in the, the markets today, um, it's, been, well, it's been a volatile year, obviously, last year, uh, and even this year as well. Um, do you think um, when you get these like, innovative areas with uh, innovative themes where companies are going so fast, they can typically, they're not as uh, impacted by the overall market, I suppose, in some cases. Do, do you see cannabis is doing quite well over the next year to two years, even though things have been so volatile? So uh, I, I think you're asking about the stocks, yeah, not necessarily yeah. the companies. The overall, yeah. the overall, you know, the, the index is yeah. a good example of... You know. Yeah. So I, you know, I, I really struggle with certain things. Like uh, there was a period of time where the overall stock market was doing really well mm -hmm. and the cannabis market was doing very poorly. And so I, I know the opposite can happen, but I would never expect that to necessarily happen, you know? Uh, but uh, uh, so I, I, I've been getting this question for many years. If the stock market goes down, you know, what would happen to cannabis? So I, I, I try to break it into two parts. So, you know, usually when the stock market's going down, it's because people fear the economy's weakening. And that, that, that can be a reason. It's not the only reason. Uh, so in other words, interest rates may get on people's uh, front, front burner again, and they're worried that the economy is going to slow. And so it, it causes stocks to go down. What's that mean for cannabis stocks? So I try to answer, you know, I can explain the correlations over time, but I, I do like to say, but you, know, you have to understand that cannabis uh, is a growth area. And 
the growth area isn't so much dependent on the economy. I mean, we're talking about uh, a, a product that, that people have you know, habitual devotion to, like coffee or cigarettes or uh, other things like that. So the weaker economy, if that were to play out, yeah. won't necessarily deter cannabis spending. It, it can make it a great relative growth story. And the growth, the growth isn't about how much people spend. The growth is more about how many more people can get converted from the illicit market where they're already spending anyway into the legal market because new states are opening up or within existing states, uh, cities and, and towns are opening up and allowing retail to come in or, or supplies coming online, all, all these constraints that have been limiting the growth. So, so I, I do see, you know, it's, it's, it's certainly not its own asset class, yeah. but it, uh, I can see how the cannabis sector, you know, may not track stocks necessarily. It's certainly, I can point to times when it didn't track them up. And uh, I, I would expect that to be the case on the way down. But I also warn people like, you know, we live in a world where assets are extremely correlated. And if the S&P 500 drops 10% tomorrow, don't expect our stocks to go up. It just doesn't work that way. And interestingly, you could make the, make the um, argument that it's a consumer staple in some, in some right. of Right. I mean, it is. Way. Yeah. But, but it's a growth staple, which makes yeah. it even better. So yeah, a year ago, you know, when it, uh, I, I was still a little bit confused exactly a year ago about what the pandemic was going to mean. It wasn't really until early May that I figured out it was actually good for the cannabis industry. But, uh, but a year ago, we were kind of, you know, in this mentality around the world that, you know, the consumer was rolling over, nobody had jobs. It was really unclear, you know, what, what might happen to, <laughs> to the world, much less the cannabis space. But, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a lot more comfortable now that the, the growth, and I was trying to explain to people, it's like, okay, well, restaurants are going to be down 50%. And if we're down at all, I'll be surprised. So that's actually really good relative growth. Yeah. But uh, so I, I think that played out pretty well. Yeah, that's a good point to, uh, to finish on. And we do this quick fire round at the end of um, sure. a lot of interviews it's just four questions not looking for long answers just you know whatever quickly comes to mind okay so the first one is name an investing hero that you have uh, an investing hero so I mean I, I worked with a client once his name's Jeff Friedberg and he, he was a self-taught person who ran his own investment firm and I, I just liked the way he developed his own style and uh, I, I've learned he's a, been a mentor and I've learned a lot from him but I, I know nobody in your audience has heard of him, so uh, that's a, a hard one to share. But uh, what's so distinctive about his style? Uh, he really bet on management, and yeah, he paid attention to the numbers. But to him, it was all about the story and the management. And public companies we're talking about, but yeah. And uh, uh, I mean, I know you said to keep it quick, but I can tell you, we walked in. I went on. I took him to Minnesota. And uh, we went and visited like 10 companies in, in, in along the way, mainly in Minnesota, but on the way back down in Kansas as well. And uh, we walk into this place and he notices on the wall, the, all these awards that were from like, I don't know, five years or six years ago. And uh, he said, this company has seen its prime that, you know, they were winning these awards and, and now they're not. <laughs> I was like, wow. And he was right. It was such an astute observation, but he's just a real world person. And, you know, I'm more of a 
spreadsheet person and uh, did they beat consensus and, and things like that. And he, uh, he did an excellent job of, of being very different from me. And I tried to learn how to be more like him in a lot of ways. Yeah, that's really interesting. Favorite book is the next question. It doesn't have to be about investment. So uh, if you have a favorite book, yeah. I do have a favorite book about that's really helped me think about things. Uh, this guy, Clayton Christensen, and he passed away recently. But, uh, and I don't remember even the name of his books, but I, I, re- I read a lot of his books. And, uh, and it was the, if, if there was one line or one idea to take away, it was all about, you know, if you don't cannibalize your own business, somebody else will. And so I just learned a lot from uh, Clayton Christensen's work. Can you explain that a, a bit more? Yeah. So companies need to innovate and they don't have to be afraid of killing off their product. And, uh, because if a company's making a lot of money on a product, uh, it, even if they're going to make less money on the innovative product, they need to do it because if they don't have the solution, somebody else will innovate away. Uh, so, you know, you don't get a yep. permanent advantage. Very interesting. And an important lesson the market's taught you. Oh, my God. Uh, there's so <laughs> many of those. And, I'm, you know, I'm 56 years old and I'm still learning lessons. And uh, I think uh, uh, this lesson has been over and over and over. And I feel like I don't always get it right. And I, I try to remember it, though. So when I was very young, I was working uh, on Wall Street and, and the stock market crashed in, in 1987, October of 87. And, mm-hmm. and I had been betting on, on stocks to go down and I was buying put options. I was just a kid. I was 21 years old and uh, I lost patience with my strategy and it, I had no puts when the market crashed. That was the first part of that about, you know, Pace yourself. Don't don't go all in on an idea and let yourself, uh, you know, not be there when I, you know, at the right time. Because getting the timing is very difficult. But another part of that same lesson, and it's over and over and over in my life, it's just how when things feel darkest, you're supposed to invest. And I know it's so obvious, but look from my vantage point, running a retail service, running a media platform. Uh, I see in the cannabis space how people don't understand this very idea. They show up, they get excited about cannabis stocks when after the prices rally a lot and everything's in the headlines. And then they give up later when things cool off. It's like, so I've learned this lesson and I will say it is very hard to appreciate. The pandemic really tested me. I, I, my portfolio was down a lot and I got a little panicky and I took some losses that I, I really regretted afterwards because I know, you know, I should know better, uh, yet uh, I had to protect. And, uh, and luckily, I was able to overcome uh, yet again that same error. But so I guess I don't know if I've officially learned it. Uh, if, if you keep making the mistake, uh, uh, then maybe you haven't learned it. But I'm on my way to learning uh, kind of about pacing yourself and not getting, uh, you know, letting the market get you out of your position. Yep. Finally, what is your edge? My edge? So it's interesting. I'm very narrowly focused. And uh, I think that's what people like about both 420 Investor and New Cannabis Ventures. And I would say uh, other jobs in my life, the, the part where people appreciated what I did, it's the ability to filter by being really focused on just one you know, very narrow area. You can become an expert in it. 
And, uh, you know, that is my edge by, uh, and it, it's, that's not an edge that's proprietary to me. That's an edge that every single human being can have. It's not the only way to succeed in life, but, uh, you know, I've told my children, if, if you want to succeed, one way you can do so is to become an expert in some area. So I, I'd say my edge has been to become a narrowly focused person. Well, Alan, that's, um, it's been a pleasure to have you on the show. And uh, thank you so much for your time. Oh, I appreciate it. And I, I hope uh, to come back in the future and uh, we can talk about how the industry's evolved even further. Yeah, well, I, it certainly will be a lot of stuff to talk about, in, even in the near future, I think, in this industry. Um, can you tell us where our audience can go to, to follow your insights and, um, you know, get like sure. you on Twitter, et cetera? So, yeah, on Twitter, I'm at Invest420. Uh, and then, uh, but I'd say really the best way to follow me is uh, to go to newcannabisventures.com and uh, sign up for our weekly newsletter. It's free, uh, but that, that's probably the, the, the best way to follow it. It's a great resource. It doesn't cost anything. If one of your listeners wants uh, more insight and analysis, uh, 420investor.com, 420investor.com. Dot com, uh, that's my subscription service, and uh, it's not for everybody. But pe- you know, the people that uh, a lot of people love it. But you know, subscription services aren't for everybody. So I like to make it really clear: uh, newcanvasventures.com is something literally everybody interested in the industry should be using. Yeah, no, I, and especially because that some of those things earlier, those misconceptions. I think um, quickly you become aware of it. I, well, at least I did. Through, through sort of reading your articles and everything, it's, you really become more aware of how, how the industry operates and, and where potential oh, yeah. opportunities are. So yeah, I really recommend it. But thanks very much, Alan. Have a good rest of the day. It was great chatting. Thank you, Ed. Thanks for listening, everyone. Just a quick note before we sign off. If you're looking for an easily digestible daily update on the markets, this might be of interest. Opto Updates is our short newsletter sent every day during the trading week, giving you a bulleted list of the top seven stories from the global stock markets. We've done the hard work for you, highlighting relevant opportunities and trends. And in addition, we'll also keep you notified of any new products, stock reports or webinars from the Opto world. If you're interested, sign up using the link in the show notes. And thanks also to Co-Fruition for consulting on and producing the show. Until next time.